трибунах холеют знамена, Облака в поднебесье плывут. На зеленом ковре стадионах разноцветные майки... Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Russian Football News Podcast. We've got some interesting topics up for discussion today, including manager resignations and sackings, as well as derbies around Russia. So as per usual, I'm joined by our website editor, Toka Thilaid. How are you? Hey, Thomas. How are you? Yeah, all right. Thank you. And we're joined, as per usual, of course, by Andrew Flint. Hey, Thomas. How are you doing, buddy? I'm all right. Thank you. Yes, not bad. So we may as well just uh, crack on with it straight away and go through the derbies. So, I mean, we see a lot of interesting derbies around the world and Russian football has a, a reputation of having some rather excitable derbies I guess you'd say which obviously came to the fore at the weekend which we'll go into more detail later with the CSKA Spartak match so Toka I mean just let's with the editor I'm putting the onus on you what give the listeners a, a good description of a, a Russian derby well I think Russian derbies in, in general are quite similar to what you see in all other major cities with big European clubs and uh, big ultra fan groups. I think the thing that makes Russian derbies and Russian football really unique, or especially in Moscow at least, is the amount of, of clubs we have in one city. I know perhaps in London you, all, you also have tons of football clubs, but they don't really have the same way of fan culture. But with Russia having um, so many top clubs with thousands of fans based in the same city that's that's really a special thing and that means we have tons of, of derby matches uh, each season both in the top division but also also lower down um, I remember the former Birmingham player Gary O'Connor once said that every time they won a derby match they received tons of money in bonuses and they played like 12, 15 derbies a season so he could earn a lot of money by, by performing well in those matches and I think that's that's really what what makes the Russian Premier League and and Moscow City derbies is unique, unique. That's that's the amount of them. Okay, so Andrew, I mean, Toka's gone over sort of the the city derby there, and he mentions London. Now, London is very much a sort of regionalized area. So you have a South London derby, a North London derby, West mm. East, etc. But obviously, this isn't the case in Moscow. Well, that was exactly the point I was gonna I was gonna mention. It's um, I, I've not been to all of the well, different combinations of Moscow derbies, but it, it does appear that the exact location within the city um, doesn't seem to have the same sort of character that, yeah, like you mentioned in the, you, know, you would say North London derby, you'd say that <clears throat> the, the other areas of the city, the geography seems to be more important in, certainly in English football anyway. Um, and I, I think for me, that's what makes that's what I would pick out as making Russian derbies special in that it's not so much, well, it's not the geography, but more the, you know, what the clubs stand for. Um, I mean, I've, I've seen plenty of matches of, uh, you know, of Spartak, particularly traveling to other cities in Russia, and they always have a huge following within the city, each different city in Russia itself. And to be honest, if I was coming into football, Russian football today, uh, wanting to, you know, follow the fortunes of one of the big clubs. I wouldn't pick Spartak simply because of the almost overcooked people's club reputation. Um, and I'm guessing that that's what a lot of the fans of the other Moscow clubs would, um, you know, would see as a, a point against Spartak. They would use that against them. Um, but as far as, as long as it adds needle to the matches and, you know, builds up the anticipation, I'd see it as a good thing. Um, you know, of course, we've got Tiskas, the the Army Club, and Dinamo as the um, what well, used to be secret police um, who ran them, of course. Um, so I think I like the way it stands for sections of society without excluding people from who might live in a different part of the city or even in another city itself. Um, that's what I think makes them particularly special. I mean, it was interesting. I was speaking to our, one of our writers, Ilya, earlier on today about this subject, and I, I asked him initially, is it anything to do with location in the city? And he said, well, I'll, I'll just read what he says. Um, this is going to be a bit of a monologue, everybody, so please be patient. It says, uh, I don't actually think that your location is the biggest factor. I think it's fair to say about people who live just right next to the stadium, but I don't think that it works for bigger areas, especially considering that Dinamo Moscow and CSKA are historically located in the same district. 
the reasons why people would choose one team or another is not actually that unique. It may be just from a father or a brother supporting the team or the most successful team at the moment. There's also the hipster factor, I guess you'd say. For example, Elia says FC Moscow had a, a quite a big band of supporters quite a while ago as it was quite a sort of a trendy club to support. A bit like Krasnodar now, he says. And then it goes back to what you were saying, Andrew, about the different structures of society. So in the old times, you'd have people from FSB associating themselves with Dynamo, and then you've got the army support for CSKA. Or even, he actually says that 10 years ago, Locomotive was popular among quite a lot of young girls due to sort of attractive players <laughs> in the squad. And he specifically mentions Billy Aletdinov, Ismailov, and Saichev. But um, <laughs> the thing is with the... I sort of questioned him on the facts of society because to me it sounds quite Soviet when you support a club because of the profession. You know, it's all very Soviet. And he says that it's not as strong as today. But, for example, if you work for the FSB, then you go to a sports centre which is owned by the FSB and it's called Dynamo. So, therefore, you have that particular affiliation there. So, overall, it's it seems that it's not so much location or even in the old days, perhaps it was a profession thing. But actually, it's much more of a family thing. Would you agree with that, Toka? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's very easy to romanticize, especially when we talk about Soviet football, the relationship people had to Spartak as the, the the club in opposition to the Communist Party and to the system. And, and all these things you can make, make it sound very, very good. And you can sort of romanticize why that club became popular and why everybody supported that club. But I think it, in the end, for most of the people, it's because Spartak was also one of the most successful clubs in Moscow, one of the most successful clubs in the Soviet Union. They played wonderful football and, um, yeah, won tons of games and titles and everything. And at the end of the day, I think that's, that's what's the most important thing when attracting, when attracting fans on a general basis. You can also see it today. I think the, the reason for why Spartak is so popular at the moment is, of course, also because they were so good in the 90s. So a lot of young people growing up by then started supporting Spartak, even though they lived in the Far East or wherever they lived. Um, and that's why, of course, also why Spartak can always fill up their away sectors, no matter where they play, because they have tons of fans spread out the, spread out the entire country. Yeah, I mean, going back to what Ilya said as well, I asked him sort of the specific reasons for nowadays supporting a specific team. And he says, family, performance, accident. I asked him what he meant by accident. And he says, by accident, I mean your first game is on TV or at the stadium and you just happen to enjoy the experience or just the colours or anything or, you know, just something really simple like that. So I asked him what his yeah, story... Go on. And that, that's just like everywhere else, I guess. I don't think that's... Of course, that's not unique by Russian standards in any way. I mean, that's how people all over the world pick their clubs. I also I also think an, an, an important factor regarding these Moscovit clubs is that... Um, for a long time, none of them have really had uh, uh, stadiums anywhere. I mean, Siskan and Dynamo played out in uh, in Rimki, far away from from the Moscow city center, and Spartak have moved around um, between stadiums in Moscow for for the in, in, entire uh, for the entire life of the club. And then we've only seen Lokomotiv in, in the past two decades having their own stadium, which which was their basis, with their academy and everything. For all the other clubs that have been moved around, and of course that has also affected the um, who supports them, because you don't really have that specific affiliation to a certain uh, area in the city when you're moved around between stadiums and academies and training grounds and everything. Yeah, I mean, Ilya's story is actually quite interesting because you're thinking, right, he's he's a Russian, so he must have like a Soviet father or something. And as we know, Ilya's a big locomotive fan, so you think, oh, maybe his father worked on the railways. And it's a bit like you were saying, Toka, really romanticizing it. But actually, he says, my story is pretty simple. I just like the name. My daddy's a huge Dynamo fan since 1963, and he was obviously just a bit sad. So really, there's nothing too dramatic with that, Andrew. Well, no, I mean, uh, Toka does make a very good point. The romanticism of the, you know, the stories of how, you know, the, the reasons for Soviet era people um, attaching themselves to teams. Um, I remember reading um, something that Igor Rabinow wrote once. Uh, and he was born in Odessa in well, modern day Ukraine. And and he was talking about the, the glamour. And at this point, it would have been a romantic reason and a genuine reason. The, you know, the anti establishment idea of it but the, the one thing I'd um, I'd mention at this point 
when you know going back to this specifically not just choosing a team but the relationship between the moscow teams is that the the sort of the balance of power or the balance of importance has shifted so much in the last 60 70 odd years i mean back then um Rabineau was talking about how dinamo kiev in the in the soviet league it was spartak and dinamo kiev who were the main rivals and before that, in the 20th century, I guess it was, you know, Dino and Moscow and Spartak were um, fairly antagonistic towards each other with the, you know, police and the army and all that stories. And nowadays, you'd say CSKA, Spartak is probably the 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 biggest Moscow derby. And then, of course, you've got other factors like um, the the rise of Zenit in the last 10, 15 years. That's made them, I'd say, had a major effect on the importance of the Moscow derbies themselves. So um, <clears throat> I just think it, it's changed a lot and um, how the club's relationships with each other has uh, has developed. So it's, you know, it's, you can't really just categorise this is what Russian derbies always have been. They, they've changed, you know, in 20 years' time, we may well be talking about uh, locomotive and... But our torpedo Moscow might have a sudden resurgence. Who knows? Then maybe that will become bigger. Um, and that's what I find fascinating about it. I can't wait to see how it develops over the next, you know, 10, 15 years or so. So, Toko, would you agree with Andrew that, uh, did you say Spartak and Siska, sorry, Andrew, was the biggest Moscow derby at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's from my impression from what I've seen in terms of following. So, I mean, that's, that's what I would go with, um, uh, partly for, you know, the modern, uh, you know, the level of the teams, you know, their chances of success. That's probably what I would go with. And would you go with the same token? Oh, yeah, there's, there's no doubt that that's by far the biggest game at the moment. That's, I mean, in, in all of Russia, we saw this weekend, it's it's a game that's always so loud. And this season, it's even between two good teams because Spartak are on top of the league. And, yeah, there's, there's really no competition between them. I mean, Lokomotiv and, and, and Dynamo are not... I'm not even close to to coming into that level, but I've always liked the derby between Spartak and Dynamo for for all the historic reasons. There's there's so much history in that derby that goes all the way back to to before the clubs were founded even, and this relationship between Spartak being and and now I'm the one romanticizing. I know that, but Spartak being the opposition club and Dynamo and Iberia using all their all all their advantages being in the in the FSB and the, the, the KGB back then and, and all the advantages you get by being in the secret police, using those to get an advantage against Spartak by attracting players, by fixing game, by all these things. I mean, there's so much history in the Spartak Dynamo, uh, least, uh, but, but these days when you look at it, it's, it, it's, it's simply not on the same level as, as Spartak Cisco because first of all, Dynamo is not very well supported and then now they're even in the, in the FML and, so, it, they're not playing for the titles anymore, and of course that has also affected the intensity and, and the level of the derby. So, Spartak, Siska, there, there's no comp- uh, competition for that one. Um, just very quickly, Toker, am I right in thinking in your article about VVO Moscow the other day, you mentioned about sort of the advantages of being in the Dynamo team? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all listeners yeah, should go and check that, check that article out, because it is fascinating, where you can see... Yeah, but- yeah, but but when you talk about these things, it's also important to remember that Spartak were no, were not much worse than all the other teams. I mean, it's it's a well-known fact that Spartak also had all these apartments in Moscow they could give out to the players, uh, and Spartak also had very close ties to the government. It's not like Spartak were completely on the outside, being 100% independent. For example, one of the men behind the idea of creating Spartak was was the head of the. Um, of the Russian youth communist organization. So he was like the patron of the club and the government contact. So you, you, you simply couldn't function in, in the Soviet, um, Soviet Union as a football club without close ties to the government. So Spartak also all had all these political friends high up the party and everything. So they were not independent in any way. That's, that's way too romantic to, to put it that way. Oh, well, we're all cynics on this podcast. It's fine. But, um, <laughs> I mean, Andrew, I hear you chuckling there. You mentioned the Zenit connection in there as well. And obviously that's particularly interesting mm. to me with my sort of Petersburg affection, if you like. Now, I would argue that that's not really a football derby. 
It's just a clash between two cities that have constantly been at each other's mm. throats for the last, whatever, 300 years since St. Petersburg was founded. Because we've obviously had the change in the capitals during that time. And also, mm-hmm. a, a Petersburg person, this they see themselves as more cultural than the Muscovites. I think possibly because Moscow very much bore the brunt of sort of Soviet architecture and things like that. When you mm-hmm. go there, there's all the flats yeah. and things. Whereas you go to Petersburg, it's very much as it was back in sort of when it was set up by Peter the Great with all those fascinating buildings, all the canals and everything. But would you say that you mentioned Zenit's success, would you say that it now goes more into football because they're challenging for those titles? Yeah, very much so. Um, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head with the core of the relationship between, you know, Zenit and Siska um as you know, as a rivalry, um, but I do, I do think I do think football is coming into it. I mean, the the jealousy at each other's success will will always have a root in the you know the background of the cities as you mentioned. But um, you know, the more often they are playing games where the winner could pick the other to the title, the more football just naturally will come into it. And you know, it, it comes back to you know what I mentioned earlier about the the ever-changing nature of derbies and relationships and which ones are more important, which ones are less important. Um, and, you know, I mean, the thing about the thing about Zanit is, as well, I'd probably say that, you know, adds extra, well, an extra level to the relationship is, I mean, most people forget about Dinamo St. Petersburg, um, who used to be, as I understand, used to be uh, the main rivals for Zanit. But, you know, I've seen them as a fan of lower league football. I've seen them lower down the system. And um, I mean, we're at probably two final points in it. They're utterly dreadful. Um, I hope they survive and I hope they they build up power and if in if in the future they could get into the Premier League and add a second St. Petersburg team, that would be great. But the fact that Zanid effectively own the following of uh, of an entire city, um, whereas Siska are part of well, one part of um, of Moscow, I think that's that adds an extra an interesting element to it because perhaps it's that sense of seniority this that sense of being the top dogs in their city adds to the fact that Zanit fans feel they are top dogs in Russian football and you know I'm sure Tiska fans will will hate the what they will see as perceived arrogance and Zanit fans you know I I just think it's I think it's a fascinating clash of cultures as well um and you know no discussion of derbies would be complete without mentioning that relationship yeah I'm just going to do a quick selfish plug of myself here for listeners i I wrote a piece on dinamo st petersburg I, I can't remember how long ago it was now but if you google it it will come up it, i call i think it was dinamo the footballing embodiment of leningrad and st petersburg just because of the sort of name change and you are right they were the main team in petersburg but during the 70s and the 80s they had a real downturn and therefore obviously people see a successful club like zenit and they think well let's go and support that so it's i mean the interesting thing with Zenit in particular is unlike Moscow where you've got all those teams, as you said, it's the sort of the one club city. I mean, people talk about Newcastle in England, but I think Zenit are much more an embodiment of the the locals, if you like. For example, if you speak to local people in St. Petersburg, they would be able to probably name, even if they're not interested in football, they would probably be able to name a couple of players from that UEFA Cup winning side. So that's, you know, even if you're not into football, to name those sort of people just shows how important the football club is to the city and how it represents the city on a European scale. Um, mm. I mean, Toka, what would you say about this sort of Zenit and Moscow derby? Well, I think as you, you said it very well, both of you, of course, it's, it has deep cultural roots and in, in, in histori- historic roots, but the fact that the Senate is now a real competitor and the Senate are the richest and the, best and the strongest Russian team, and that they are competing against Spartak and Siska and, and Lokomotiv and all these teams in the, in the top of the Russian league, of course, that adds even more tension and even makes the, the games even more significant and even more interesting because now it's not only a cultural thing, now it's also um, like a top of the league championship uh, game. And of course, that the fact that it is some of the most important games of the, all, the whole season, both for the fans, but also for in the league, that's that's just that that's really special, and that's that's why these games are so 
interesting to follow. And Toka, just before we sort of move on to the Spartak CSK CSKA game at the weekend, any other sort of derbies around Russia that you would pick out apart from going outside of Moscow and Petersburg now? Well, the, the interesting thing with, with these clubs is that actually the, in Moscow, that's that's the only city in uh, in Russia, or in the, in the top division at least, that we have a real city derby. Elsewhere, that we have, for example, I know Andrew has talked a lot about this when we when we spoken with the Amkhan Ural in the in the Ural derby, and we have the Volga derby between Ruben Kazan and uh, Krylia Sovietov. But <clears throat> but these these cities are all hundreds of kilometers away from each other, so. It, it's it's very different from a city derby because the fans that they don't meet each other on a daily basis. I mean, if you live in Moscow, you'll you'll see stickers of your competing fans. You'll see graffiti. You'll see people wearing scarves, maybe, or you know, friends who support other club. But but that's not the situation when you when you live in, for example, Samara or Kazan, because the the cities are still very far from each other. So it's it's a completely different vibe with, with these derbies. And Andrew, I know you you're quite Interesting, picking out on the the now quite modern Krasnodar derby. Mm, yeah, I mean it's um, it's been a it's been a fascinating um, journey of of Krasnodar. Sergei Galitsky's club, only still only eight years old, um, created from well, they merged together two or three amateur clubs in the city, I believe, um, and they got a helping hand on the way, which lent to a lot of jealousy from Kuban Krasnodar. Kuban was set up. Uh, about 80, no, sorry, 90 years ago nearly. Um, so they're the historic club in the city and then suddenly these upstarts come along and they, they have a, well, in my, in my opinion, a very, um, holistic approach to how they intend to go about their business in the sense that they focused on youth development throughout the whole region, which is not really, and it's going to sound odd, but not really with the intent purpose of filling the team with their own players, but simply to spread the popularity of the club. It was actually quite a clever way to um, sort of claim ownership of not just Krasnodar City, but the region. Um, and because Galitsky's got a, a ton of money, of course, they've been able to bring in some, you know, some pretty decent players, but not, all, not always for big amounts of money. I mean, very rarely do they spend huge amounts. In the last, I don't know, say three summers or so, um, their net spend has been one of the lowest in the league. Um, and of course they brought in, you know, some good free transfers like, uh, Podbiroskin, um, Smoloff, of course. Um, and even Ari, uh, he's been very good for them for two or three years. They got for 400,000, something like that. So, um, I mean, now that Kuban were relegated, <clears throat> there isn't a direct derby to play each year, but the, the jealousy is just exacerbated even more. Um, I personally, just for the sake of seeing a derby, I want to see Kuran get promoted again, but unfortunately it doesn't look like they will do for a couple of years. But when they do, I think that could be a really, really good derby for Russian football. So to show people it's not just about Moscow or Moscow versus St. Petersburg, but there are other derbies that have genuine roots as well. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that, uh, Krasnodar derby, the potential in the future, but we might have to wait a couple of years to see it again. So... Toka, as I mentioned previously, we're sort of going to move on to the previous derby at the weekend, excuse me, that we've been talking about. And unfortunately, we saw some rather unsavoury banners uh, from Spartak fans, in particular directed at uh, Siska fans. Do you want to just sort of go over that for the listeners? Yeah, there were a lot of, I don't know, I, I don't assume how many of our players have know about the background of this, but a couple of weeks ago, Siska's uh, head coach, Leonard Slutsky, was in the um, an advertisement, a commercial on TV for a, a Jewish cultural center, because Slutsky's uh, father is Jewish and he is, so so he is of Jewish faith as well. Um, and that was used for by the Sparta fans to mark Siska. For example, they said something about um, you're from a synagogue and referring to the star and the logo. They said it needed uh, another uh, another point. You, yeah, like it, it should be a Jewish star and. And they, they had painted like a, an Orthodox Jew with the hat and, and the curly hair said 100% Siska. So they had all these references to Siska being a Jewish club. Um, it's also worth uh, noticing that both the general director, Roman Babayev, and owner, uh, Gina, they're also Jewish, both of them. But 
Um, so, so Cisco definitely has, has these ties at the top at the moment, but traditionally has nothing to do with, do with Judaism or anything like that. And it was, it was really disappointing to see Judaism being used as sort of a, a way to mark each other because the, these were clearly racist banner, anti-Semitic banners. There's, there's no doubt about that. There was even uh, a banner that showed some reference to, to the German SS, um, to the Nazi. Yeah, it had the logo, the skull and crossbones logo. Yeah, exactly. So there were a lot of a lot of really ugly banners at this game, and I think the the thing that annoyed me the most was that after the game, instead of talking about these banners, instead um, Priyatkin, the, the president of the of the Russian Football Premier League, he started talking about the amount of uh, flares and pyrotechnics that were set off, because I think these banners was actually the main issue. That was what's needed to be discussed. That's that was the real disgrace of the game, not that the fans lighted off all these flares. I mean, Andrew, how do you go about policing this, though? Because it's quite easy to, you know, roll up a banner and just sneak it into a ground, and there's not much you can do about it. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's that's my main concern, if I'm honest. Um, I mean, I think my main issue with how it is policed and dealt with at the moment is that the only pu- the only punishment that I seem to see happening is clubs being fined or some sections of the stadium closed. And... I mean, okay, there's not so much that you could really say the RFU or any organisation can themselves do, but just passing the buck over to the clubs um, in the sense of a a monetary fine, in my opinion, that itself should be banned as a punishment for anything. And especially, you know, hateful messages and racist messages like this. It's just, um, it's a complete waste of time. Um, How to actually police it, though, what's the actual answer? Well, I mean, you could go one of two ways. I mean, you could go the uh, the dangerous route, in my opinion, of just conducting thorough searches of everybody. But, I mean, that would just take so much time. And we already have an issue of the low level of low number of fans going to Stadia already. And if they're going to be subjected to exhaustive searches and, you know, checking inside coats and bags and everything... Um, you know that will turn even more fans. Sorry, away. sorry, sorry, Andrew, but not being funny. But surely it's better to have those exhaustive searches and not have things like this. Well, no, but this is what I mean. It's like you, you don't know how far you'd have to go to actually stamp it out. You know, would that? I, I mean, I agree with I agree with what you're saying entirely. Of course, I mean, whatever can be done to get rid of these these messages, of course, is is um, has to be done. But you know, it's. Um, how far would you have to go to completely stamp it out? Because once you start doing that, start putting up more filtered systems of, right, you're going to have to go through one search here and the next search here, um, you're going to have to go even further. The fans who want to get the messages in will try everything they can to do it. And I know it sounds awful, but it might even spur them on. They might see it as a challenge to see right, who can be the most daring fan to get more more banners snuck in. Um and unfortunately, I don't really know what the answer would be. Um, but uh, one thing I would say, I mean, it's I mean, it does, it's just a horrible, heinous thing to see that what we saw at the weekend. Um, but I have seen some I have seen more positivity in the last two or three years than the general consensus or stereotype has been of Russian football in general. You know, as we well know. Uh, you mentioned Russian football to a Western football fan nowadays, and they just instantly say, right, oh, it's just the most racist. Yeah, it's um, all you hear, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's all you hear, isn't it? I mean, of course, there are instances like this weekend demonstrates, but, you know, um, it's, uh, I've, I've seen action taken and literally in person. I've spoken on previous podcasts about this. I was at, um, I was at a Tiska against Angie game, um, a year ago, and I saw a, another banner with, a more regional racist language on it. Uh, it appeared 15 seconds and uh, 15, 20 seconds, it was taken down. The other fans around them said, put that away. Don't be so stupid. Um, so it's not a completely lost cause. And I, the reason I like that example I mentioned is because realistically, the only long-term way to deal with it is, is educating people that this is just, it's just wrong. It's ridiculous. Um, and it will take years for it to filter through to all fans. But in the end, I, I see that as the only effective way of, of stamping out these sort of messages. Yeah, Toka, I mean, Andrew talks about the policing there. And 
he's quite right about the, the amount of searches, but we're already seeing a large amount of searches going into grounds. And he also mentioned the education there. Now, it's it's good that we have groups like CSK Against Racism who actually brought the, a lot of these issues to light over the weekend. And it's up to... It's not up to groups of them like that because it shouldn't be their responsibility. It should be a collective thing. But groups like that are, are doing a really positive thing and perhaps don't get enough credit for it. I absolutely agree. I mean, uh, what what they do is, is very important because they do notice a lot of these things and it, it they also put, put pressure on, on the ultras um, because they know that they're actually being watched now. For many years, nobody would care at all about what happened on the ultra stands behind the goals around the country but now they're actually people looking at them noticing what they're showing on their banners noticing what they're writing what they're singing and of course it puts a pressure on them for example we saw with um Olga Kuchkova the, the girl who won the Miss um, Charm at the at the Premier League beauty pageant was it last year two years ago I mean that had not been noticed had was not for CSK fans against racism who checked out her VK profile, and she could have been, she would have been the the winner of that contestant today had had they not checked out who who she was. So she had, sorry, sorry to, she had quite a lot of else is, is doing. She had quite a lot of right wing extremist stuff. I'm right in thinking. Yeah, she had like her boyfriend had tattoos referring to white pride and all the, and she wrote burn the Jews and stuff like that. There was there was a lot of a lot of neo Nazi stuff on her both like tattoos and also on her profile in, in general. So that was a lot of disgusting stuff. I remember I checked it out and I was I was shocked because it seemed like such an obvious thing to do to just check her background real quick. But yeah, I mean that's they're doing a really important job and I hope we'll start to see grassroots movements like this one spreading around the country. And other clubs as well, because obviously there's still a big need for it. I think regarding to these banners, it's you could put as much police on the stadiums and as much control as you want, but it's almost impossible to keep banners out of the games. It's it, I think it's pretty easy for the fans to get in, um, no matter what you do, really, unless you, of course you strip them all naked. But that might be a bit too much. I think what's really important is you need to create some sort of responsibility among the fans. For example, we have it at Cisco these days. When they play in the Champions League, you don't see any any offensive banners or, or singing because they know that people are watching them. They know they can get really severe punishment. They've got a big history in the Champions League as well over recent seasons, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. And so they have a lot of all the major fan groups and everybody are aware of this. So they have a lot of internal control with what is being shown, what people are wearing what's being brought to the stadium so the club doesn't get in any sort of danger in these big games. And I think that sort of of, of responsibility for what happened is, is what you also need at, for example, Spartak and all, and all these other games. Um, and that's that's really... as that, and Of course, that comes from what Andrew said, that, for example, a monetary fine of a couple of thousand euros, that has no effect at all. That that, that simply doesn't matter. I mean, it the, the players... The fans don't feel it has any effect on the club, and it doesn't have any effect on the club. And so you need to have part maybe uh, points deduction, maybe close to sectors, close to stadiums, because these are punishments that the fans can actually feel, because obviously they want to watch the team. They don't want to go to a bar or stand outside the stadium chanting like Siska did in the Champions League two years ago. Um, so you need to have some punishments that actually matter, but then... I think you also need to reward the fans when they're actually behaving well. For example, like Galitsky did at Krasnodar when he gave cheaper tickets to um, to Senate and Spartak fans after they they didn't do any offensive thing. After they actually behaved well at the games, I think it's sort of like stick and carrot structure would be would be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, I've just sort of gone something over something in my mind. Would you say that the RFU are too scared? But I mean, I know they're quite powerless in this thing, but actually. To me, they seem quite timid about the whole situation. Yeah, um, you, I think you've got a point, and I I completely agree with what Toka just said about the the the, the way that punishments are set up, the carrot and stick idea. Um, I I think that is the way to do it. Punishments, um, the punishments that they hand out, and I would I would call them cowardly punishments. The you know, if you go on the RFU website or the or the Premier League website, you can find an official section just covering a long list of 
what they call punishments, and they're all minimal fines of money. That does, that makes no difference. What on earth does a fan care about how much, you know, whether it's 30,000 or 40,000 rubles that his club have been fined? You know, it's, it's, it's a pathetic amount of money. Um, they, I think you're right. I think they are scared to enforce. The only things that would make a difference would be either a complete stage enclosure um, or points deductions. And realistically, I think points deductions is the way to go. Um, closing a section of a stadium. I mean, again, it comes back to one of the issues we've talked about a few times before, which is the low attendances. Close one section. What on earth does that, what difference does that make? You know, most stadia are half full at best other than for the major games. And even then, you still see some seats available. So, you know, closing a section of a stadium is, is a weak, it's a weak, it's a cop out. They have officially done something on paper, but realistically, the fans' attitudes aren't going to be affected one bit. Um, and uh, they, they've got to be bold. They have to be bolder. They have to be, because otherwise nothing will change. The fans will realise, they will see that they are more powerful than the authorities, that their influence is, is too much for the authorities to actually hand down a punishment that makes the slightest bit of difference. Um, uh, whether it means... Whether, yeah, I've, I think maybe even they could just simply, in name only, pass over the responsibility to UEFA. They can enforce it, but say, oh, it's come down from UEFA. It's not us, but it's UEFA or even FIFA have told us this is the punishment you now must do for incidents of racism. So at least then the fans won't direct their anger at the RFU. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's an option. But um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I do think they are scared. Um, and the, 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 all the time they remain scared is all the time that this will continue. So um, the sooner they get grow a pair, the better. The only problem with your argument regarding UEFA saying it's come from UEFA is it relies on UEFA actually doing something constructive, which I don't think is that likely, to be honest. But um, Toka, I mean, I want to ask you more specifically, as well as those banners, obviously less important this issue, was the issue of flares over the weekend. Now, obviously, Andrew and I, with our sort of English background, over in England, we don't really have that flair culture. Now, I understand in Denmark, and we saw it with Copenhagen at Leicester the other night, there's much more of a flair culture. So, I mean, are flares really that bad? No, I mean, I've, I've always been, to be honest, been a big, big fan of flares, and it's, I think it's very normal anywhere else than, than England, maybe Spain, because it's, it's, it's just a big part of, of ultra culture, and you, you'll see it everywhere. I think the, the, thing is that of course you have to make it safe somehow. I mean, you can't have guys who have had 40 beers lighting off flares who are thousands of degrees. That's that's just dangerous and irresponsible. But, for example, in Norway, they have uh, legalized it. I was going and, to say that. Yeah, I mean, CSK yeah, fans against race and posted this. The, the fans now have to apply to, I believe it's the fire department, the local fire department, and then they set up a plan for this and they can fire the flares legally. And I think that's that's a good solution because I think it's it's almost impossible to um, it's almost impossible to stop. I remember reading an article after this derby saying that they confiscated more than a hundred flares. They checked the entire stadium before the game, and still look how many was was brought into the game. So if you try to just eradicate them by finding all of them before the game, that's that's pretty much a lost uh, fight from the beginning. So I think it's it, it's better to 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 aim at making them safe and making the environment positive um, for the flash so you don't see. Of course, I don't know if you saw there was a game in Poland this week where the fans starting from. Oh God, it was ridiculous! Yeah. Mm. Into each so other, I saw that. Yeah, that's completely responsible, and that's. that's I have I have seen that in Russia as well, though. Toker, I was at Zenit yeah. versus Dynamo a couple of years ago, and there were yeah. there were firecrackers, and the kid had to be carried out because he he got a shock because it exploded next to him. Yeah, and I mean, when when you see stuff like that happens, of course, it, it also happened in Russia. I was not saying that it didn't, but stuff like that, that's very serious. And that's, of course, as soon as someone does that, then it's very difficult to, to argue for why you should try to make flares like a legal thing. But I think it, it provides a, like a boost for the atmosphere, but you just have to make the circumstances the right way so you don't have people throwing them and you, you, like, you have to make sure that people know exactly what they're doing and that they're being handled properly because, of course, otherwise it's it's a very dangerous toy. Yeah, I mean, I was at the Second City Derby at the weekend and a couple of flares did go off, not around me, 
But I have to admit, it did sort of spice up the atmosphere a bit, and I, I just hope nobody was injured, and I hope they're all perfectly safe, which is a bit weird to say about something that burns. But um, I want to move on now to something a bit more on the pitch, I guess, even though it's still off the pitch, which is the resignations and sacking of uh, Vadim Skripchenko from Ural and then Vranky Verkataren, I don't know how to say that name with the Belgian, from Krylia Sovietov. Now, Andrew, do you want to just go over that Skripchenko situation for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I, the the weekend game was against Terek, and um, a year ago, that was the same game that was surrounded by a huge amount of controversy over an alleged betting scandal. And and to be fair, the evidence looks pretty damning. And um, you know, the odds were ludicrously in favour of Terek winning. As it turned out, the game finished three three. But straight afterwards, Viktor Goncharenko resigned. Um, and, you know, we've now seen him back at, well, he went to Siskaya's assistant to Slutsky and then now is at Ufa. Uh, and his assistant, Vadim Skripchenko, took over. Um, now he's, uh, he resigned himself. Um, but interestingly, the club president, Grigory Ivanov, wanted him to stay, but he also said that he was only told by Skripchenko after the Terek game. Um, but Skripchenko himself had decided a few days earlier. Um, the club wanted him to stay, and uh, but he's but he's gone. He held a press conference yesterday to explain his you know explain his reasons. Um, he hinted that he you know the psychology of the players wasn't as strong as it was last season. Um, and I actually I actually think he may have a point. Um, you know the Terek game itself. Terek won four one, um, having been one nil down. Um, the first 20, 25 minutes, Tarek weren't even, they weren't even in the contest. It was a stroll in the park. Ural looked like they were strolls of victory. And then just suddenly they collapsed. Um, and again, there were people were saying around the game that there was talk of more alleged betting scandal. You know, they were talking about match fixing. I don't, I don't really believe that. Sorry, I, sorry, Andrew. Um, very quickly, am I right in thinking that Vitaly Mutko, Russian football union head, actually said this as well? I didn't see him quote directly, but you may, you may well be right because a lot of the journalists. Uh, I was at the game, and a lot of the journalists in the post-match press conference. Um, well, between each other and in the conference, we're asking about this. They were saying, well, we've heard um, it might actually be quite serious. I don't remember them saying Mutko exactly, but you may well be right. Um, but I, for me, that's just creating a story out of out of nothing. I don't I don't buy into that. Um, or I'll have for a, a while this season been poor, and clearly they're not fighting as hard as they should be. Um, they're not been a long way off results, but... You know, they they just there's there's a lack of cohesion uh, amongst the team. Um, but either way, the end result is that Skripchenko's gone, um, and uh, they they've said they will hopefully appoint a either till the end of the season or permanent manager before the game at the weekend, which ironically is against Krilia, who have also fired well they have fired Frank Bukalton, so. Um, it'll be quite an interesting, interesting game to see which club manages to survive the the loss of their manager. Um, Toko, we've seen at the moment with Ural have got uh, Yuri Matviev in charge, who I gather is just a coach at the club. Are there any particular people in mind that you think could fill that vacancy? That's a good question. I think for both of the clubs, at this point, they need someone who who knows what what they're doing because we are almost halfway through the season and they especially clearly I mean they have they have seven points for 12 games they've scored six goals that's that's a goal every other every other, every second game so I think someone experienced who can elevate the club for example like what bad did at Rostov two years ago that that would be of course the dream scenario but we also know that both of these clubs don't have unlimited funds they have very tight budgets so I think I wouldn't be surprised to see both of them coming with some uh, promoting a, an assistant coach or a youth coach or something like that because there's not that many available top coaches at the moment, especially not if you're talking Russian coaches. And these two clubs are not the most are, are not the most attractive clubs anyway. So I, I can't see much of an improvement on them on the coaching side, especially not for Krilia because I think for Kalsen was an, an excellent head coach with 
a lot of experience and some interesting visions and ideas, but he just Trillia is not the best club at the moment. He had very limited funds and they were behind on wages and all these things. So it was it was a very difficult place for him to to achieve what he wanted to do. So I guess it was inevitable for him to finally leave the club. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, Tokra sort of echoed my thoughts here. I think that uh, Verkalteren has been dealt a really bad hand here. I actually think he's been very harshly sacked because, mm. you know, he, he won promotion in the first season after they got relegated, kept them up last year with an excellent defensive record. And now, in my view, the I mean, I know it's difficult with the ownership thing of Krillia because they don't have that much money, but the lack of support for him in the summer has really cost him dear here. And I wouldn't... I would put the blame on the board for this season's performance rather than the manager. Yeah, I, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, but like this summer and the summer before, um, Bacalton quite publicly and this summer on the club's own TV channel itself has, has just complained about the lack of support in the transfer market. And like you mentioned, he made such a good deal of it last, um, uh, the beginning of last season. Uh, and they had that incredible result in, against Zanit where they, they won 3-1, I think it was. Um, and he's, um, <clears throat> it, you, people got to remember, he joined the club when they were in the second tier and he got them up playing efficient, effective football. Uh, I remember when they came to Chumen and Krulia um, won 1-0, um, but Chumen were never really in the game. But Krulia didn't need to outscore, you know, heavily teams, but he got them up with very limited options and then he did such a good job holding the defence together last season okay this time round sure you know clearly are bottom of the table and you know they've conceded but only conceded just over a goal a game which is not it's not horrific I mean it's not brilliant no but you know Rubin have conceded 15 and they're they're 10th in the table he's not been backed you look at their squad and they've only got three, four actual full-time midfielders in the squad at all. And at times he's been forced to play six or even seven defenders on the pitch. You know, he's put uh, Milan Rodic in midfield, Sheldon Bateau as a holding midfielder. They're not midfielders, really. Um, and, you know, OK, well, for all of the doom and gloom, you look at the statistics and everything. One win and they're out of the relegation zone. Um you know, I, I, I think he, I agree with you. I think he's been dealt a very, very harsh hand. Um, and, you know, the, what makes it even more painful for, for Cowton is the fact that in five games time, we've got, or six games time, we've got the winter break. And that's when Russian clubs traditionally, because of the, the amount of time, do most of their recruitment anyway. So it could have been an opportunity to regroup, bring in one or two midfielders. Um, and don't forget, they let go of um, Georgi Gabalov, who was one of their top scorers last season, um, uh, which I thought was a ridiculous decision in itself. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think he's been very harshly dealt with for Carlton. But, Toka, I've just thought something here. Would you think that Verkalteren would actually be relieved that he's been dismissed? Well, not so much dismissed, but left the club, because now he can sort of go back to his life in Belgium, in his homeland, and he's had quite an extensive coaching record there. And actually, it's a bit of a relief for him to get out of this mess. Maybe, maybe not a relief. That maybe that's that's a bit too much. But but I think you definitely has a point. I think being it in some other being with Krilia has, especially in the last two years, has been chaotic. We have heard rumors of him being very unhappy when the club didn't have enough money to buy the players he wanted. When he found all these people who could strengthen the squad, which he desperately needed, and the club simply didn't act on it. So, I think. I was surprised he went there in the first place, to be honest. And I, I think he's somewhat happy to to go back to a place where, as he go play, back to a place where he thinks I'm all like in the West, where where he can, in, like in an environment he knows and where things are maybe a bit more structured and and easily dealt with, because he has been very outspoken in his in his criticism, uh, both of the club and the league, like. Sort of a, a mini Villas Boas coming to Russia, uh, looking at things from the outside, and yeah, I think he's probably looking forward to returning to Belgium or wherever he decides to go. Okay, perfect. For my money, if another Russian club in a similar situation took him on, I think it'd be an excellent appointment. But anyway, we're now going to go to the listeners' questions. So we sort of introduced this new feature quite recently, where all listeners and readers of the website can ask us any questions about Russian football, anything ranging from off the pitch to on the pitch matters. 
just a very quick one for either of you here. We've had one from Henry Hakamaki. Um, I think I'm pronouncing that right. It looks like a Finnish surname on Twitter. And this is where the question becomes quite relevant. He says, um, is there any more update on the Yeremenko situation? I mean, I've, I've not heard any new developments on it, but what I find surprising about it is the obscurity about it. Um, because we haven't, we still, as to my knowledge anyway, um, haven't had any clarification on exactly what was, um, his transgression. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I can't understand why it would be so difficult just to put out a simple press release explaining exactly what happened. Um, you know, if the guy is, if it's only a, an ongoing investigation, let's say it's an ongoing investigation into a missed test or something like that, um, I'd, I'd find it all a bit strange, if I'm honest. Um, but I, I've certainly not been aware of any new developments. Uh, I don't know if, Toko, I don't know if you've heard anything recently yourself. No, there's, there's a hearing next week, and that's, that's where we'll know what will happen next. I believe it's Tuesday. Um, so it should be interesting. Siska are desperately needing him. I, I took a, with, even with, with Dakota out there, the, the midfield is so weak at the moment with, without those two guys. So hopefully mm. he'll return soon. But yeah, it, it has been a very, very odd situation from the beginning. Okay, and uh, a second question sort of ties into what we were saying about Ural and Krilia, really. It comes from Steve B uh, at NYJester. I'm assuming he's a Krasnodar fan because he had a, a Jalzinho picture on his profile. And he said, uh, would be great to get your thoughts on the current league table and how you think think things might shake up from here on in. Well, I mean, looking looking at the table after last weekend, you look at the top, Spartakins and each seven points clear already. Um it's very, very hard to look past those two as challenges for the title. But I would just say this. Toku is absolutely right. Cisco's midfield is looking very, very weak at the moment. But, you know, it, their squad wasn't outstanding last season either. They did have Musa, and that's a big, big loss. Um, but in the winter break, if they are able to bring in a striker, um, and that, you know, and possibly a midfielder too, um, you've got to remember they've only played three home games. And they've got a run now of about four or five home games uh, before the winter break. And they've got a couple at home after the winter break as well, I think. Um, and in that run, they they should be able to to win most of those games. They could be able to creep back in towards the reckoning at the top of the table. So I wouldn't rule Cisco out just yet. A lot of the evidence is against them, but it, it, a lot relies on the recruitment. They've got to be in one or two. But I think they... I mean, they might get closer than people think. Um, I mean, at the bottom of the table, Ural, I am desperately worried about now. Um, you know, they've, I'm, I'm partial to them. I do go and watch them. Um, but they've got a lot of, they've got a lot of potential, but just not enough is gelling at the moment. Um, Skripchenko was chopping and changing his team selection a bit too much for my liking. Um, you know, I mean, the, the centre, a centre back partnership is, is critical at any level of football, um, no matter what the formation is. And Fontanello is the mainstay, but it's been Dominic Dingo, it's been Radovan Pankov, it's been, um, it's been a chop, it's been chopping and changing. And with a new manager, unless it's a good, solid manager who comes in, um, I'd worry for Odell at the bottom end of the table. Um, so that's that's my two pennies worth from the basics. And Toko, just starting on that relegation battle, that was a huge win for Arimburg against Krilia the other night. Yeah, and it's as we, as we talked about, it's so even at the bottom at the moment. We have only three points dividing Krilia on the who are 16th and Arimburg who are who are 12th. So it's like every single point counts at this point, especially because. These, let's be honest, these, these, uh, teams on the bottom at the moment, they're not very good. They don't get a lot of victories. They don't, so every single draw is, 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 is golden at this stage. Elsewhere, when I, when I look at the league, I think it's worth noticing that Krasnodar have actually done quite well, um, while Smolov had been out with an injury and terrible he, away from home though, Toka. That's yeah. true, but, but he, he'll, he'll return soon. And I think they're still, they're only fifth. They're only one point behind Siska on the, on the third place. So I think we, they can actually start looking up in the ta- in the in the table, and I expect them to move past Terek very soon. And then, then we have Ruben Kazan and Lokomotiv, who are also starting to look 
maybe not good, but at least decent compared to the start of the season, and who could also start to to move up the table. That would definitely be interesting, um, especially Lokomotiv with uh, with Semen. But maybe the derby victory against Siska came more because Siska are bad than Lokomotiv are good. But I hope to see these two teams move up the table soon because they belong in at least in the sub top. And one one thing I would just add, actually, before, um, is, I, guys, one thing I've noticed, a lot of people are saying, um, I've noticed some comments about how well Amkar are doing this season, and quite honestly, I've, I've never really bought into it. Um, they started the season pretty well in terms of results, but they had, the first two games, their opponents both had a man sent off, and they, they're tight, they only scored nine goals, um, and... I, I don't see them as, as contenders. I really don't. The only thing is, Andrew, just... I would say, is that the Russian Premier League is so low scoring that if you can pick up a 1-0, then it, the, the goals for column doesn't matter too much, especially with goal difference so low well, down the chain. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it is very true. And this, I'd say even this season in particular, even by Russian standards, has been a very low scoring season so far. But, you know, Amkar, Amkar are a solid side, um, but I don't see them realistically um, pushing for European places. So although they are only one point like Krasnodar, level on points of Krasnodar now, one point behind third place Siska, I don't see them challenging. I see them drifting around to about mid-table, but which is not bad itself. So, but we, we, I think we see that very often with clubs like Turek and Amkar, uh, especially Turek. They start very well. I'm in a position where you start to talk about, okay, this team could actually go to Europe. And then in the last 10, 15 games, they slowly lose the form because the squad is maybe not that good and also they the lack some depth in the squad. Also, something I just re- remembered, I think it's Andrew mentioned Siska earlier and there are seven or eight, eight points behind Synod and, and Spartak, but that's not the first time. We always see Siska start the season very well, then they slowly... <laughs> last season they lost, I, I think it had seven games in a row before the winter break with no victories. Yeah, yeah that was And then right, yeah. in the spring, they are suddenly revived and they go on an incredible winning spree. So I wouldn't rule them out yet, especially not if they, if they bring in a striker, we have, because we have seen them make these incredible cutbacks in the league so many times before. So, And especially in what's important to remember is they're already out of the cup and maybe they'll even be out of European football. They usually are. So in, in the spring, all they have to focus on is the league and that's that's when they really get tough, and that's when they usually start to to pile up the wins. And just very quickly from both of you, any sort of under the radar teams we should be looking out for? I would um, I would add in throw into the mix Angie. Um, I've been very impressed with how Pavel Verba has got them got them together. They've had some pretty pretty good results. I mean, drawing with Zanit, holding Zanit to uh, at least a point is impressive by anybody. Um, but they've got some really, really exciting players. Bernard Berisha is a favourite of ours, of all the writers on the site, I think. Um, and Cedric Yambare, uh, is turning into a, a monster of a holding midfielder. Um, I think, I think Angie have potential to possibly not quite make European football, but certainly get closer. Um, so I, I think they're quietly doing, doing better. So I'd keep my eye on Angie. And what about you, Toka? I I also thought about highlighting Angie actually, but now that they're already taken, I, I'd like to to find some focus on Ruben Kassan. I think I was at least very hard on them before the season, but they have actually looked, as I said, decent lately, and they are the fourth high, highest scoring team in the league. And as soon as they get the defense under control, I think we could see them move up the table to uh, between yeah around the fifth place probably, because. They're actually not that far off. I mean, five points after Krasnodar, that's, that's definitely a gap that's manageable to close with, uh, with still 18 games to go. So that's, it's way too early to, to rule them out with, with the goals starting to come and, 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 and the offensive, uh, way of playing starting to look better and better for each game. Yeah, I mean, for my two cents worth, I'm going to put in Ufa there, who are in ninth place and they've, uh, they're on a bit of a good run at the moment. No defeats in three. So, I mean, in ninth position, you mentioned Goncharenko earlier, Andrew, former Ural, mm. of course, and I think they could do quite well, considering they escaped relegation by the skin of their teeth last season on the final day. It's certainly an impressive run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, be honest, I didn't see them 
improving as soon as they have this season. Um, I, I think you're right. I think for them, a target of comfortable mid-table is a huge success um, because after that, they're more likely to have a settled side, keep give Gontrenko more of a chance. And I think he's an excellent coach. I was a big fan of his um, before... Uh, before he even came to Russia when he was in Belarus with Bate Borisov. So, you know, I, yeah, I'd agree with you. I think Ufa are doing very well. If they can hold on to that position, move up a place to then I'd say that's a huge success for them. Especially losing uh, Zinchenko in the summer to Man City as well. But yeah, now, absolutely. now it's my favourite part. It's my, it's the only in Russian football moment. So I'm going to come to you first, Toka. What's your only in Russian football moment for this podcast? Well, I'm, I mentioned this earlier. My, my only in Russia uh, moment is the fact that instead of talking about clearly anti-Semitic banners, the authorities chose to talk about flares. I think that perfectly highlights some of the major problems in Russian football and Russia in general, that, that racism is simply not acknowledged as a problem. It's not something we talk about. It's not something that we take serious. So let's just sort of sweep it under the carpet and then talk about flares instead or whatever instead. I think that's like that that's a major issue and like my only my only Russian moment for this this episode. Okay, perfect. Um for you, Andrew? Well, my my only in Russian moment this week I, I was debating whether to be serious or not, but I'll I'll try and end on a positive, light hearted note. Um I I go to I go to Ural games and in the in the press area downstairs, um only in Russia would you have the president of the club <clears throat> actively having to be physically restrained from uh, attacking the opposition. And I probably shouldn't really Amazing. be saying this. It might might damage my um, my standing at the club. Highest it is already. <laughs> but um, he he was restrained by his wife. from this is a few weeks ago actually. Um, and. Uh, against Angie because there was some comment that came out of there I couldn't quite catch it and I, I can't understand Russian much anyway when I'm listening to it but he was um, fairly irate should we say um, and he didn't hide it from all the journalists who were snapping away as they saw him screaming and shouting but anyway nothing came of it but very very nearly did well I'm sure you're not the only person to report it so I think, I think you'll be okay <laughs> should be so my only in Russian football moment this happened a good couple of years ago now but I only thought of it this morning um, you meant we we were talking about the searches earlier. Now I was going to a Zenit game, and obviously the standard search comes in, and I've got a pack of tissues in my pocket, and they they insist that I get rid of them and throw them away. I don't know what they think I'm going to do with a pack of tissues in the stadium, <laughs> but clearly it's a dangerous thing. <laughs> so that's my only in Russian football moment: big tissues being confiscated. Amazing. Okay, well it just leaves me to to thank my guests as per usual. Brilliant discussions as always, Toka. Uh, thanks for having me on, Tom. It's always a pleasure. No problem. And Andrew? Yeah, great as always. Thanks, Tom. Lovely. Before I go, Andrew, RFM Predictions League. How's it going? Ah, well, I'm glad you mentioned, Thomas. Yes. Um, uh, the Predictions League is is a bit of a bit of a pet project of mine, but um, we've got we've got about 25 regular players. Um, if anybody's listening to this and is interested, all you've got to do is keep your eye on the Facebook page, the Russian Football News Facebook page. Um, we've got a whole load of of different ways you can join in. Um, so don't worry if you're joining late. There's a, a league for your average score per prediction. So you start late, you can still, you can still challenge. Um, and I think what we, what we might do is for the, uh, from the spring onwards, we might do a second competition for people who have only just found out about it. So keep following it. Um, and, uh, yeah, send in your predictions when you see the, uh, when you see the post on the Facebook page, it'll come up. Um, at the moment, I think I am second. Steve Fenton is our leader. I was um, going to so ask who's top to... shout out for the leader. Well, yeah, Steve, Steve, uh, Fenton, he wrote a couple of brilliant articles for us, actually. One on, um, Lucien Aguirre, Vladivostok and one on Baltica Kaliningrad. You don't get much um, further apart than that, do you? Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, um, covering the breadth of the country there. But yeah, he's Steve is Steve is top. Um, but we're actually on average doing better than we did last season. So, um, so that's a positive. 
I'm not going to ask where I am because I'm sure it's near the bottom. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep quiet on that. Yeah, one. please do. Anyway, and just for listeners as well, we obviously get quite a lot of questions about uh, racing and things. Now we've given you a bit of a preview today. Now. We're planning to do a bit of a special podcast on racism and things like that and hooliganism in Russian football over the winter break, rather because we think we should dedicate a lot more time to it than just a simple, small section on a podcast. So keep an eye out for that on the winter break. As per usual, keep checking out the website, uh, RussianFootballNews.com, at RussFootballNews, and RussianFootballNews on Facebook. Again, RussianFootballNews.com, at RussFootballNews, Twitter, RussianFootballNews, Facebook. Download this podcast, subscribe, sell it to your friends. It's... We really like giving you the insight to Russian football. So, thank you once again.